And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she keeps shouting after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. He answered, It is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, Woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed instantly. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we have reached the week where the Gospel lesson is uh, Jesus being mean to that poor woman with a sick daughter. Maybe this would be a good week to just focus on the Old Testament passage, or maybe start a sermon series, or maybe convert to Buddhism. No, let's not do that. Let's keep our eyes on Jesus. Let's try to make some sense of this passage. Why does it annoy us so that Jesus says, no, uh, only for the lost sheep of Israel, and, you know, we don't throw the good food to the dogs and such? Well, I think it's probably because we really don't like it when anyone tells us no. We don't really like the idea that Jesus would tell anyone no either. We have become so accustomed to grace, so accustomed to yeses from God and from our corporate overlords who want our money, that even a reminder that Jesus once dared to tell someone no catches us off guard and offends us. Well, the good news of that is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is so, uh, throughout our, our society and throughout our culture, that we just live in this world of, of grace, uh, the goodness of God. The bad news is that we've become so used to or accustomed to grace that we can easily miss the way it is a great gift to us. So you have people wanting to build a society on the virtues or the values of the gospel, but they no longer hold to the gospel itself. But Jesus comes across so negatively in this passage that we'll often even make excuses for him, as though Jesus needs us to make excuses for him. I mean, here he is, sitting like a king in a guarded house. His disciples are kind of acting like bodyguards, right? Keeping people away so that he can preserve uh, his strength and his power and his time. And then here comes this pitiable woman with a sick daughter, and he has the audacity to tell her to go away. So we come up with alternatives or explanations for why Jesus may have done what he, what he did. Well, maybe he was using it as a teaching moment for the disciples, or maybe he didn't really mean it. Or maybe, most commonly we'll say, he was engaging in a kind of dialogue with the woman to test her, to get her to confess faith and trust in him. It was his way of extracting that confession of faith from her. Well, each of those is quite plausible. But sometimes I worry that so quickly 
dismissing this exchange as nothing more than some kind of exercise in rhetoric, it, it might actually do an injustice to Jesus. After all, what did Jesus really meant what he said? And he just left it at that. He never did heal her daughter. Would we be okay with that? Would we still love Jesus? Would we still think him worthy to be our savior? In fact, actually, what he said is a common theme in the New Testament. It comes uh, up elsewhere in the Gospels and, and later on into Acts, which is the pattern of the Jews first and the Gentiles second. In fact, in the early church and in Paul in his ministry, as they went about from town to town proclaiming the gospel, where did they do it first? Synagogues. Synagogues first, then later to the Gentiles. In Acts 1, Luke records Jesus saying the following, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Now I'm going to add a few words for emphasis, because this would have been how it should be understood. You will be my witnesses first in Jerusalem, among the Jews, and then in all of Judea, and then in Samaria, and then to the end of the earth. See these concentric circles, they keep getting bigger and bigger. You start here, but then you expand exactly what Jesus said to the Syrophoenician woman. I came first for the lost sheep of Israel. And of course, it makes sense to evangelize the Jewish people first. Jesus himself was born of the tribe of Judah. The history of covenants, of military conquest, of God's word coming to the nation of Israel through prophets... Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that. So it makes sense that you would begin with those for whom this story, you find the ending in Christ. It is the obvious starting point, in fact. So is what Jesus says here really so awful? He retains the right to preach to whom he wants and to heal whom he wants, does he not? Indeed, this isn't even the only time that Jesus says no in the Gospels. There's another time where Jesus either cannot or refuses to perform miracles in Nazareth because he was doubted. Oh, who is this kid? He's a carpenter's son. So he did no miracles there. There are many other times where Jesus withdraws from the people. He goes off to pray so that he can recover his strength. That means he's telling people no. He's leaving uh, the opportunity to perform miracles. And Jesus regularly chides and, 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 and criticizes the Jewish leaders of his day, telling them, in essence, no, but we never seem to get mad at him for that. Let me make an even more controversial statement, sure, to rile you all up. This woman is not entitled to anything. Jesus doesn't owe her or her daughter anything. Oh yes, she's a pitiable character. And because we're all made in the image of God, we naturally understand that this woman is in dire straits, that she has great need, and, and we are sympathetic to her. But she was, in fact, a sinner. Now I know what you're doing, you're going in the text, well I don't remember in the text saying anything about her being a sinner. She was a child of Adam. Of course she was a sinner. We're all sinners. She had already rebelled against God. There doesn't need to be some specific mention of how, how she had sinned in her life. 
She was a sinner who had rebelled against God, like we all have. She is owed nothing. You see, we just don't hear those kinds of things anymore. We have gotten so used to being catered to and to jumping to the end of the story of grace that it would never occur to us to suggest that this woman deserves anything except what she is asking for. In fact, it doesn't occur to most of us that God is not required to answer all of our requests the moment that they are issued. Of course, this is the, the common problem of evil, right? Why doesn't God fix evil in the world? Why doesn't he stop evil from happening? One of the stated reasons, and that word stated I inserted very intentionally, because I don't know that it's a good reason or the actual reason, but a stated reason that God is so often rejected is precisely because we witness suffering and then we are aghast that God just doesn't drop everything, including all of the plans that he is working out through all manner of events, both good and evil, for the praise of his glorious grace, as it says in Ephesians 1, to eliminate, God doesn't just drop everything, to eliminate the suffering that we hate. Well, God must not exist then. How absurd a conclusion. Suffering exists, therefore God cannot exist. God could not in any way be using these events for his glory. Oh, no, no, that can't be the case at all. If Jesus must heal this woman's daughter, then it has no real meaning. It's just a pro forma exchange. But he doesn't have to heal this woman's daughter. And the woman's socioeconomic status, by the way, or the fact that she's a woman, that doesn't mean anything either. I mean, let's not get sentimental here about it. She deserved nothing. Neither do you. Neither do I. Now, if those statements disturb you, and trust me, they're kind of hard for me to say, well, then it just serves as proof as to how entitled we have become. And yet, and yet, Jesus does heal her daughter. But why? Because her faith was great. Not because she was pitiable, not because it was a sad situation, but because she trusted in God enough to heal. Indeed, that is the narrative of the Bible, the meta story, if you will. We are saved by faith. Old Testament all the way into the New Testament. The central calling of Paul's ministry and Jesus' ministry. We are called to trust in God regardless of the circumstances. That's what faith is. Trusting in God in spite of the circumstances. And God rewards faith. Last week, a very prominent pastor wrote the following. And I mention it because I just told you what I think the meta-narrative or the big storyline of the whole Bible is. This is what he said. The storyline of the whole Bible is God's repeated identification with the wretched, powerless, and marginalized. The central story of the Old Testament is liberation of slaves from captivity. Now, 
Admittedly, he wrote a lot more than that. I'm cherry-picking a few lines. But that is a very popular meta-narrative that is casually imposed over the whole Bible today. But it's a pretty shallow summary. God works among the poor and the marginalized, as well as the rich and powerful. Remember Abraham? He was extremely wealthy. Even though Jesus becomes flesh, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, he remains king of the world. God is not a weak God, but a powerful God. The Israelites were not only freed from slavery by God, we're told that's the whole meta narrative of the Old Testament, they were also sent into exile by the same God for their unfaithfulness. Now, there's no denying that the story of the Bible is indeed one of reversal. Right? God giving us what we do not deserve. Right? Our values being shown to be different from what God values. And yes, all people, regardless of their station in life, are valued by God. We are made in the image of God. Jesus calls ordinary people to be his disciples, and on and on. But the whole storyline of the Bible is more about our salvation by faith in spite of our circumstances rather than some kind of portrayal of God that actually would put him at our service. Yes, God became flesh and saved the powerless. That is true. But it doesn't mean that he was any less sovereign in the process. And my concern, why am I bringing this up? Well, my concern is that constantly indicating that the whole Bible is about God serving us, the lowly, well, it suddenly begins to communicate over time that God, you know, he really couldn't tell us no, even if he wanted to. It's almost like God has been pressed into service. And this woman is a good example of someone who is more or less deserving, who can more or less demand by virtue of her station and her situation that God make her problem go away. Is that what we think about God? On an upcoming Theology on Air episode, we had a guest on to talk about the self-care movement in the gospel. Self-care is not altogether bad, but it's probably gotten way out of hand. Treat yourself, uh, take care of yourself, love yourself, things of that nature. Um, but self-understanding and the quest for perfect health or peace, those things are not as important as being known by God and trusting in God. It's far more important that we know as much as possible about God rather than knowing ourselves perfectly. In fact, I would argue we're way more mysterious than God is. God is perfect. His deeds, his decrees, they're pure. But we're sinners. We're far more mysterious to our own selves than God is to us. Now, with all of those caveats, taking nothing from God and demanding nothing of God, we can really appreciate the radical nature of this story and the true grace of Jesus Christ. Now, Matthew drops a landmine in our very first verse. I'm not sure if you caught it. Jesus left that place and went away to the district of Tyre and Sidon. What? Just a little bit of geography, right? 
Tired and Sidon. That's outsider territory. That's Gentile country. Those people are dogs. Those people are dirty. Why would Jesus go there? Exactly. Why would Jesus save you and show mercy on you or show love to me? Because I deserve it? Because I can demand it? Because I am pitiable? Because I am poor? Because I am some kind of minority? Nope. Because God is gracious. In his grace, he has given us the gift of faith, and through that faith, we are saved. He says to us, just as he said to that Syrophoenician woman, your faith has made you well. So we don't need to defend Jesus in this story. He was well within his rights to tell her no. And if we can acknowledge that, then we can appreciate the yes all the more. Amen.